You are listening to the In Perspective Weekly Podcast with Bob Branco and Peter Outchul. Hi, everyone, and welcome to In Perspective. My name is Bob Branco, and this is episode 316, dated Friday, July 14th, 2023. With us, as always, our good friend and colleague, Peter Alchul. Peter, what's happening today? How are you? Happy Bastille Day. And uh, here in Columbia, Missouri, we actually got some rain, but we're still well behind where we're supposed to be. And it's 95 degrees and humid. So welcome to Missouri Summers. Well, thank you for that information. (laughs) Okay, so without further ado, let me thank those people who make it possible for In Perspective to be made available. We start out with our producer, Raymond Gay. Thank you for what you do. Tom and Lynn from Rosie's Place Chatline. Thank you for posting our programs. Our media outlets, thank you for airing us when you do. And finally, Jacqueline Sylvia from JS Web Solutions for archiving our programs on my website, which is www.brancoevents.com. Just go there, click on In Perspective Podcasts, and you will see most of our archives there. Merci, Jackie. Our guest today is going to talk about advocacy and vocational rehab and a lot of other related topics pertaining to the well-being of persons with disabilities. She's been on our show once before, and she has a company called Synergy Consulting Partners, and she's also done a number of other things, which she will touch on as well. I'd like to welcome Janet Lebrecht back to our program. Janet, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. It's great to be back with you. My pleasure indeed. And I'm sure that Peter echoes my sentiments as well. I do indeed. Tell us what Synergy Consulting Partners does. Well, Synergy is actually a company that I formed in 2017 after my tenure with the Obama administration. And I had the opportunity to think about what is it that I want to continue doing for the rest of my working career. And for me, it was the only time in my career that I knew my start date and I knew my end date. And so I had to be thinking very strategically about, you know, a four-year period of time, which goes by incredibly quick, about what I was going to do. And one of the things that I have always enjoyed doing was working with policy uh, and information advocacy and certainly uh, developing rules and regulations uh, for the vocational rehabilitation program. And so during my tenure, I realized that agencies still struggle with being able to ensure that they're providing the highest quality services for the disability community across the country. And that it's oftentimes is hard for them to sort of be in multiple places at one time when you're serving whole communities of people, but to kind of keep your pulse on the feedback from the community, are the services being well received by the community, are the services um, adequate that are being provided uh, to the community. And I always wanted, you know, to continue doing that work. And so I formed uh, Synergy in 2017 to, in fact, to continue doing 
some of the same work that I was doing during my tenure with the Obama administration. So I work with uh, agencies, vocational rehabilitation agencies, but I also work with private nonprofit organizations, uh, technology organizations and companies, as well as uh, corporations uh, around advocacy, around you know, consulting, doing some consulting. I serve as advisors for uh, several companies and advising them on uh, disability-related issues, uh, looking at ways for them to strategically design uh, both the opportunities for employment, but real effective inclusion, not just putting the word inclusion in a job posting and then hiring an individual and only to find out they're truly not inclusive, you know, in the work environment. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that particular area. There's a lot of things that employers certainly are doing extremely well, and there are some great examples of that. But that that is kind of the area that I chose to continue growing my expertise, but also I am extremely passionate about it and, and enjoyed the work that I was doing. So I wanted to keep moving forward with doing that and having the opportunity to to really provide some expertise and guidance, um, both to agencies as well as to companies. So that's the work that Synergy does. I'm assuming that a lot of this has to do with compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act as well. Some of that does with regard to companies. Um, obviously, VR agencies are already required to comply with the ADA and their rules and regulations are already structured and so that they, in fact, are compliant. Um, but again, agencies recruit, they hire. And so absolutely they, they are responsible for being in compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act, as well as with a series of other laws, rules, and regulations that they're responsible for as well. Speaking of the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, Janet, where were you on July 26, 1990? I was actually at the signing of the ADA in Washington, D.C. at the White House. And what 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 got you there? How How were you invited? I was, well, I wasn't actually invited at that time by the White House, but it was open uh, invitations for people to attend that wanted to attend. And I responded, you know, to that. Uh, I had been doing some some work, you know, in my college experience and really wanted to be a part of that. So I had known that it was coming and wanted to actually be there uh, for the signing itself. And that was the first time I actually took my first airplane flight uh, was to Washington, D.C., and was able to to be there for the signing of the ADA. And what was the experience like? It was amazing. It was, it was, it was, it was hot, of course, as DC is in July and August. Awful. Uh, but it was, it was absolutely packed with, uh, people who represented the disability community and obviously those advocates and those individuals who were actively uh, playing a critical role in the structuring of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And it was held on, I think it was the South Lawn at that time, if I'm remembering correctly. And so it was outside. 
And that was to be able to accommodate, you know, a larger um, group of individuals who were in attendance of it. So it was, it was inspirational. It really was because, you know, it was the first piece of significant legislation in a long time in terms of, you know, the overall ability for there to be laws and regulations that, you know, were there with the intent of leveling a playing field for people with disabilities. And not to say that it was the, you know, that it was the absolute and that we still don't have issues because we do. And, but, but, you know, when you look at what other countries have, uh, we are still very much at the forefront and still very much have laws, rules and regulations, you know, that can be challenged around the ADA. Did you meet President Bush? I did not um, at that time when during that particular uh, signing. No, I did not. So if I heard you correctly, you said you were in college during that time or just graduated from college. What were you doing, uh, you know, around the time? I had graduated from, uh, from college. I actually graduated from, uh, from University of Massachusetts, Boston in 1984. And then I was working, uh, at the time. And I was also, uh, doing my undergraduate degree program as well. So, you know, I was studying rehabilitation. So I knew about the issues. I knew that, uh, there were, you know, going to be legislation eventually, you know, approved. There had been lots of iterations, as you can imagine, um, lots of goings back and forth with regard to changes and, you know, some of the ADA language. And so I was preparing, you know, for the inevitable that it would be hopefully signed one day. And, and sure enough, by 1990, it was signed. You spent time as a rehabilitation counselor, if I remember correctly. At that I time. did. I did. I was a vocational rehabilitation counselor, but initially I was actually a um, CAP counselor, client assistance program uh, counselor at the Commission for the Blind. And uh, I actually came into that particular role because I challenged the agency on a decision to deny uh, sunglasses for me. They were a pair of prescriptive sunglasses at the time that were out on the market brand new from the company Corning. Uh, and Corning company during that time had produced uh, glasses that would significantly reduce uh, glare and strain. And they were called CPF lenses. And they were brand new to the market. And I asked the agency for it because I I have uh, retinitis pigmentosa. And I asked the agency for uh, the glasses. At the time, they were $300. They denied the request. And I asked them why did they deny the request. And the response basically was that they did not, they were not in the habit of of supporting requests for trendy sunglasses. And so that's, that was their perspective of what the sunglasses were, trendy sunglasses. And so I went back to the doctor that actually had prescribed him. And, you know, he said, you know what, you need to challenge this. And here's some information about the glasses. Here's, here's the evidence. Here's the research. And so I went back and, and put together a, a sort of a, a case, you know, that I felt that the agency had inappropriately denied the request 
and did not explain what the request, what the denial of the request was based on. And I asked the question, has any ophthalmologist reviewed any of my documentation in my case, um, demonstrating and confirming my condition, but also not just that the condition existed, but the impact of that condition. And the answer was no, they had not. And so eventually I won, I won the case and they asked me, they said, well, are you looking for money? And I said, no, what I'm actually looking for is for the agency not to be able to make an arbitrary decision when they haven't taken all the steps, you know, to confirm, you know, the benefits of the glasses or any type of technology or treatment that it should be, their decisions should be based in fact, and that they should take the time, you know, to review the information and that the information should not be based on trends. It should be based on medical evidence and medical need and financial need. And so I asked at that time for the policy to be changed is what I wanted. And I, you know, said that you guys need to think about changing this policy, rewriting it, not making arbitrary decisions, taking an individuals, uh, individuals on a case by case request. And they did that. And then as I was leaving the building, they asked me if I wanted a job as a client assistance advocate, which I didn't know what it even was. And, and I said, well, what is it? And they said, it's just what you just did. And so I said, oh, okay, I will do that. I'll take the job. And so that was my very first job at Commission for the Blind. I was a client advocate or a cap counselor. And um, I then went into independent living, and then I was a vocational rehabilitation counselor for about eight years. And then how did you get from there to, as I understand it, you, you led the organization for a while? I did. Um I was, after I did my vocational rehabilitation, an opportunity came available to for a regional director in the agency, and I applied for that position and uh, was awarded that position as a regional director. And then when I was into that position as a regional director, I was asked to join uh, the Patrick administration um, after there had been some agency uh, changes, the governor changed over to Governor Patrick, and I was asked by the uh, Patrick administration to serve in the role as commissioner for the Commission for the Blind, and and that's how I became a commissioner and was in that position for about six years uh, when the Obama administration invited me to join his administration and serve as the Commissioner uh, for the Rehabilitation Services Administration, which oversees all of the vocational rehabilitation programs, client assistance programs, parent and training information programs. Um, at the time, it was the independent living programs nationally, as well as the, uh, far, um, what is it, seasonal uh, farm workers at the time when it was covered uh, by the Rehabilitation Services Administration. So there was a host of programs, you know, that that fell under the Rehabilitation Services Program. So how, how, how did you get the attention of the governor? 
you know, you know, I, I didn't, I, I believe it was recommended, um, to reach out. They were doing a, a search and I was in the agency. I, I did not know Governor Patrick. Uh, so I believe it was recommended. Oftentimes when governors, uh, transition into, uh, their role as a new governor in any state, what typically happens is, is that they assemble a transition team. And that transition team is usually made up of other professionals who were either in the field or other related fields. Uh, They're individuals who generally will have expertise about policy development, um, certainly service delivery in this particular case, but, but they identify individuals who have that subject matter expertise and those individuals typically will make a recommendation as well as the disability community in the case of the commission for the blind uh, specifically. So the disability community has always, you know, had a played a critical role in identifying people in the community who they felt, you know, might be appropriate to serve in that particular uh, role. Uh, but, you know, that's that's typically the work that's done by the transition teams themselves that the governor appoints. Got it. So uh, you were uh, in charge for six years. Is that correct? Did I hear? Yes. You? What what changed during those that six year period? Well, for one thing, I think um, that when you think about some of the barriers that individuals who are blind continue to face, both employment-wise, but also when you think about some of the barriers that continue to exist with regard to services and independent living type services and skills that people continue to need. During that time, when I was serving in that role, one of the things that I identified there was a critical need for, uh, which was the need for use in the Commission for the Blind and in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to have access to early work experiences. And I decided that that was a particular area that I wanted to focus on. And that led to the development of an internship program, the first internship program that the agency had. I know people Um, who served as interns, so that worked out well for them. They enjoyed it. It did. Yeah, it actually did. And and at first I was discouraged to go that route and it didn't make any sense to me. And I'm the kind of person where if you say, you know, you shouldn't be doing that or that's never going to work, you know, that's to me is, is not a valid response. And so I typically will, you know, try to do it. And so it was established. It was, it was an amazing, I think, um, program for youth. And it was very successful and the governor uh, recognized the commission for the blinds internship program and awarded a, uh, an award to the commission for it. Uh, it was highly, I think, focused on making sure that students and individuals who were interested in having an early work experience, that they were both prepared, but also that they were, had an interest, you know, in work. And it, sometimes, as you all know, it's very challenging sometimes for us to think about what it is that we want to do for work because we have a tendency, you know, to focus on what 
society has told us, which is what we can't do. And so to change that narrative, an internship program really offers the opportunity for people to explore, not just to think about your limitations, but to change, I think, the narrative to expectations, increasing expectations and identifying opportunities. Disabled peer, disabled uh, individuals, when compared to their non-disabled peers, have very different experiences. You know, when you're when you don't have a disability, youth were out there during the time that I was growing up, you know, doing newspaper routes, shoveling snow, babysitting, doing all these things that are really considered early work experience opportunities. When a lot of kids with disabilities don't necessarily get that opportunity, particularly if you were a kid that was educated, for example, in a blindness school. And we still see this, you know, today. And even if you were a student, and I, I'm a product of both uh, being educated at Perkins as well as being educated in a public school setting. So I had that both those experiences back to back. And so even if you're a disabled kid and you're in a classroom setting in public school, you're, you know, the, the quote unquote term mainstream means that you, you're just there. You're there in the system, but you're not necessarily mainstream the way we think about mainstreaming and inclusion today. And so it doesn't mean that you're included, but it does mean that those individuals never have the opportunity to really explore the same way as their non-disabled peer uh, students would have the opportunity to have access to. So it was really important to me, you know, to, to really push the idea of developing this program, but also making sure that it was sustainable and also making sure that the youth in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts had a voice. So we developed a youth advisory council for the agency to advise, you know, the commissioner and its staff on issues that were impacting the, their population because, you know, the services were are geared, you know, towards them. Uh, so that internship program is still going on uh, today. A couple of years ago, I had the opportunity and was invited back uh, to present as the keynote uh, presenter, you know, in that particular program. But I think also during my tenure, during that particular time, I also was able to, I did some adjunct professor um, work with Assumption College and also did some work with uh, University of Massachusetts and looking at, you know, how we how our agency at that time recruited staff to work with the blindness community. And I think that you would all agree that it is really critically important that when agencies that work with the blindness community, when they recruit staff, that it's important to ensure that they're recruiting individuals into the agency who, first of all, have a skill set to work with the blind community, that they have knowledge, that they have interests, that they are going to serve the blind community in a way, you know, that's going to be supportive. And one of the things that we had difficulty doing back then, and today that this issue continues to exist, is recruiting individuals into the agency to, that even knew about the agency. So I decided to work with Assumption College and agreed to take on some of their students as interns in 
at the commission so that they, we could actually build a pipeline, if you will. Because I really believed at that time that if students knew about the field, and here they are, they were majoring in rehabilitation, but yet they didn't necessarily have the opportunity nor the knowledge to look at the Commission for the Blind as one potential strategy for them both acquiring experience to work with the blind community. And typically what was happening before was that those individual students were all kind of steered towards either the general VR agency or private nonprofit, Mm -hmm. you know, agencies that serve people with disabilities or private insurance companies that, um, that, that serviced professionals who were in their profession at the time, but acquired a disability during their career. And so we needed to really have access and a way to identify young students coming out of their graduate program to, in fact, you know, want to be able to work at the Commission for the Blind. And we wanted to be able to hire them. And we couldn't just hire them if they didn't have the skill sets or the expertise. And so, you know, that was a a very unique I think, um, opportunity both for the college as well as for, uh, the students. And then I think the other piece to that was we also at the same time developed a program by which we would look at students in high schools who were not, did not have a disability, but were very young in high school and were not thinking about you know, what career path they wanted to pursue. And we provided an opportunity for them also to intern at the agency and have that opportunity for them to understand the disability community, the blindness community, acquire some specific skill sets uh, that they needed to be aware of and to have if sh- if they should ever decide to work, you know, at the Commission for the Blind. And that was very good, too, because we ended up you know, seeing some of those students all the way through their, you know, through their high school experience. And then they, they actually matriculated in, you know, to, to become staff at the agency. On the Uh, subject of mainstreaming, you brought that up a little while ago, and I feel very compelled to ask you this question. Did you think chapter 766, which was one of the original laws that allowed mainstreaming of the blind in public schools, do you think that that was an appropriate piece of legislation at the time? You know, at the time it was so new and and I was actually one of the early ones who, um, when I first learned about Chapter 766, you know, that I if I wanted to go back, you know, to, to my community, at the time for me, that was an important transition for me to make. And And I made the decision that I wanted to go back and chapter 766 gave me that opportunity to do that, to go back to my community, to be educated in my public school system, to finish out my high school diploma and graduate with my peers. Hindsight is 2020, you know, but if I had a do over, I would not have done that. Um, and you know, it, it's always easy to look behind. I think the, the the legislation was uh, meaningful, but the infrastructure was not. It was not in place. It was not a good time. It did ensure that we had access, for example, though, to 
I had a, a vision teacher, you know, at the time, I think at the time they called them itinerant teachers. I had an itinerant teacher, but I only saw that itinerant teacher once or twice a week. Um, and so you had to be extremely independent, you know, and it did not take into consideration other barriers. It did not take into consideration things like, you know, true integration and inclusion into other activities. So I wasn't allowed to do things like participate on the track and field team, which was one of the things that I wanted to be able to do and was not able to do because they felt that it would be too much. I would be too much of a high risk. Well, my brother and I went to Perkins and we had national track and field records. You were quite active, if I remember correctly. Yes. So we had national track and field records, you know, for the, you know, the blindness schools and everything. So, so conceptually, I, I think that the intent was there, but again, the infrastructure was not. I want to, I want to, um, skip up to, to today because we are getting close to the 33rd anniversary of the ADA. And I'm curious to get your sense on how things are these days compared to the way things were in 1990. My sense is that we're in a very different space. We're in a space that we aren't as supported uh, federally uh, as we were back in 1990. Uh, and I'm curious to know what's your sense of the, of the, of the world of disability is these days and what we should be doing to um, influence that, that uh, space. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you know, the laws are there in place. It's kind of the similar question about 766. And, and, and I think that it's, it's fair to say that we all know that there are still far too many examples of, you know, exclusion, you know, certainly discrimination, outright discrimination, whether, you know, it's in housing or places of public accommodations. I'm a guide dog user, so I, I know that well, all too well, um, in terms of, you know, time and time again, having to explain and making sure, you know, that I'm aware and being able to recognize, recognize it. Um, and so in some ways, you know, there are parts of the ADA, I think that where we have come a long way. But there are also, we, we, you know, I think all of you, you you're, we're in a highly uh, political envir- environment, you know, at this point in time. And so the thing that I worry about is the slow repeal of, of, you know, laws as well as regulations. And that I worry about that because it's a lot easier to sort of take an approach where things and pe- bits and pieces, you know, kind of fall by the wayside. And it's a lot harder to get that back once they do. And so I worry about that. And I think that the thing that we can do is to absolutely stay vigilant about what what could be perceived as a threat to people with disabilities in general, not just the blindness community, not just the disability community, but what could be perceived as a threat for all of the disability community nationally. Um, and I, I, I think that that is really, really important. And I think probably the second part of that is to vote um, because 
our vote, while it may not feel as though it has, you know, a great deal of levity or, or power, it absolutely does. It, it is meaningful. And while we may not win everything, you know, this, the reality is, is, is that there are always different iterations and opportunities. And I, I just think that it is really critical that our voice be heard and that we make sure that we're not compromising our own laws and rules and regulations that are there, you know, to support us also, but that we also do it in a way that educates and raises awareness. I think that all of us have a responsibility to educate and and raise awareness. You know, the one thing that I've always regretted about the ADA being signed into law is that there has always been um, a detraction from focusing on the benefits of the ADA. And there's been heightened, you know, um, awareness and vocalization and threats around lawsuits. And that just never helps. It just, it just sends people running and, and they're less likely, you know, to interact. And while we know that there is a law and they should be following the law, absolutely. That litigation piece is always there and, and absolutely should be accessed when there are blatant, fragrant, flagrant, uh, attempts, you know, to dis to discriminate against people with disabilities. But I also think that the other flip side to that coin is that whenever we have the opportunity to educate and raise awareness and be a good partner, you know, in that process, that that also goes a long way as well. Speaking for uh, yeah, Bob, how are we doing for time? We're almost ready to invite the participants but if you have a final question for now peter please feel free to ask yeah i i, I do and then we'll we'll throw it to the audience or, so I, so what's that ray i was gonna say is if people want to start raising their hands now i can line up the questions awesome thank you right go ahead peter so janet uh your comment was interesting to me um you said you mentioned threats uh that was a word you used what are the threats that you foresee uh one of the threats i see is the whole issue of man uh uh, apparently the Supreme Court's going to have a case next year where, uh, before you can file a complaint, you have to, uh, make an effort to reach out to the organization first. Um, so if I'm discriminated against, uh, egregiously is, is a word you used, I can't just go to court. I, I'd have to go and, and alert, work with the employer. And then if the employer still doesn't do anything, then maybe I might have, uh, an ability to, you know, to, to, to take the legal route. Um, what, is that a threat that you foresee? And what other threats do you, are you, are you looking at? Yeah. I mean, I, I do see that potentially as, as an issue that, that would be harmful, you know, for the disability community. Cause when you think about when someone, you know, is filing like a, a complaint, you know, when there is a crime that occurs, they're not asking the victim to go and speak with the person who perpetrated the crime against them first before they go to the police department and file charges against that individual. And so I see that almost as an attempt to sort of wash it away or to intimidate, you know, the individual who is the victim, you know, of that discrimination. 
Um, and so I think that that can be a dangerous, slippery slope for the disability community. Now, I think that it will be interesting to follow that. I, I don't, even though that is proposed, I'm not, I'm not certain that that will actually go through in the way that is proposed. Um, and I, I think that the argument would be to compare that to, you know, criminal complaints that are filed against somebody who was a victim. I think that's a very appropriate comparison um, to make. And and the, the reality is, is that we already have a law in place. And the reality is, is that the, the ADA was signed into law in 1990. We are in 2023, cruising into 2024. No one can tell me and convince me that they didn't know about the ADA. Um, so I think that there are a number of ways that that pieces of the ADA, you know, may may be at risk, and and we have to look at areas that are that even are above what the ADA covers. So, for example, you know, when you look at a general dis- discrimination type law, where where it gets wiped away or modified in any way, you have to think, you know, at a higher level, what potential does that have for the disability community? Because we are a marginalized group. We are underserved population. We, in some ways, uh, still have populations who are unserved. Um, when you think of things, for example, like housing discrimination, when you think of Rules that are being repealed right now, for example, in housing, when you think about, you know, the vulnerability that people with disabilities living on fixed incomes face because they, number one, can't keep up with today's uh, market level rents that are being asked to, you know, to, to pay to a landlord, for example, when you think about financially, the the background checks, you know, that these programs do, housing programs do, uh, when they look at credit ratings today and, and a lot of people aren't aware, you know, that they can deny access and they will be doing, you know, credit checks, financial credit checks on individuals. And so there's a lot of ways that, that still require additional protections for people with disabilities who are living on, you know, SSI or SSDI benefits. Um, and if we don't, if we're not vigilant and staying up on, you know, what, what some of those changes mean, it, it isn't just for the general public that oftentimes it'll have implications for the disability community as well. You're listening to In Perspective. I'm Bob Branco and my co-host is Peter Alchil. Our guest is Janet Labreck of Synergy Consulting Partners. Ray, do we have any hands raised for our participants? We do. We have Rick. You are up first. Okay, Rick, welcome to the show. Okay, thank you. There you are. Um, can anybody hear me? Yes. Okay, great, great. Janet, I don't know whether you remember me or not. I was a graduate of Perkins when you were up there. Um, I was going to Fisher College and... um, I actually met you years later when you were working for the Commission for the Blind in New Jersey. Um, anyway, what I wanted to ask you was, working with um, the Obama administration, um, 
I'm sure you had a lot of dealing with then Vice President Biden. Um, and now that um, Biden is president and he, he obviously has a, a new cabinet, are you doing any work with people within that cabinet who are working with folks with disabilities? The, um, the, thank you for your question. And I just have to clarify something. I think, um, you might be confusing me with Janet Raleigh. Um, Jan- there were two Janets and Janet Raleigh is the one that was at the New Jersey Commission for the Blind. Oh, okay. Um, but in any case, um, the, when the Biden administration, uh, first came into office, each presidential administration, they also have a transition team and mm-hmm. their transition, transition team is quite large. And they are always pretty good about reaching out to, uh, people who served in, you know, the previous administration. In this case, it would have been the Obama administration. They look mm-hmm. to, uh, individuals who have that subject matter expertise and they reach out. And so, when the Biden administration first came in, they did reach out and they reached out not only to myself, but to multiple individuals who had served in the Obama administration. Uh, those of us had di- that had a range of, of uh, disabilities um, looking for our input in terms of sh- helping to shape their agenda. Uh, that mm-hmm. Biden had identified for his presidency, looking to understand what the potential um, focus areas might, you know, might be where there might be continued, you know, barriers um, and issues, mm-hmm. you know, for the current administration. But also they were looking for innovation. And, and by that, I mean, they were looking for ways to improve existing programs but also ways to identify individuals across the the country who might also be potential individuals who would want to serve um in this case in the Biden administration so yes we we many of us did have and many of us actually still are in contact with each other and do work at various levels um for the Obama administration and also for the Biden administration. And so they're really uh, generally pretty good, you know, about that because they do need people who do have that subject matter expertise and experience, um, you know, with getting people back in. As, as you know, when Biden came in, there there was a significant drain of, of both uh, federal individuals, but also individuals with disabilities. And then when COVID hit, Yes. You know, that was even more challenging um, because of the obvious reason for people, particularly working in federal government. There were people mm-hmm. who lost their lives in federal government that had disabilities yeah. uh, because of COVID. So they they always look look and look back and, and see, you know, who they could potentially be in touch with and, you know, look mm-hmm. for advice and, and provide opportunities for individuals to, to weigh in on, on issues and uh, rules and regulations and policies. Thank you, Rick. Uh, okay. Okay. Thank you, Janet. You're welcome. Raymond, who else do we have? The uh, next person is Beth. On in- Hello, Beth. 
Hello, this is Beth from Virginia Beach, and hi, Janet. Great presentation. Thank you very much. Um, I read a book a long time ago, and part of the title was Make Them Go Away. And it was a very, very, very detailed story about the ADA and how there were so many problems getting it passed. And I wondered if you could kind of give us a 35,000-foot view about that, if if you're familiar with the book. It has been a long time since I've read it. And what what, what was the machinery behind all of that? Well, I think that, you know, just as any new legislation coming into fruition, um, there is always a push and pull, you know, between, in this particular case, we're talking about the ADA, so it would have been between legislators, it would have been between the Democratic leadership as well as, you know, Republican leadership as well as key stakeholders in the community. And there's always this push and pull, if you will, around both, I mean, it can be as minute as language, you know, what word is the word, is the sentence going to mean shall, can, and may, because those all have very different legal implications in terms of, you know, permission to do something or not to do something. And so there were a lot, but also, uh, I think specifically with the ADA, there was a lot of engagement and communication also with the business community, the corporate world you know, around, you know, those regulations and the laws, you know, that go- would govern, you know, the ADA. And, and so I think that they were all of these competing, you know, priorities and um, legislation that, that you don't want to necessarily reflect more than one side over the other. But it it's sort of like a, a fine dance, you know, and being able to balance, you know, those competing priorities and requests, you know, that come forward in legislation. And so there's a lot of bargaining, you know, that goes on um, in order to see the, that legislation or any piece of legislation come to fruition. So when I came into the Obama administration, it was promulgating uh, the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, which is the legislation that now governs the vocational rehabilitation program and other federal uh, agencies. And, you know, that's been in the, that's been in place since 2014 when I came in. So, um, I came in in 2013 and that was already ready, you know, to, to go out and, and, you know, there was a lot of discussion. So whether it's the ADA or whether it's, you know, the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, it involves Congress, it involves, you know, other political entities, it involves corporations, key stakeholders in the disability communities and their families and educators. And so you're trying to balance all of that. And so, you know, some folks don't want, you know, to have, the, I think one of the key things that that was pretty prevalent throughout the ADA was was the allowance of time, you know, for people to make the changes, to make their environments accessible. What kinds of environments needed to be accessible? Um, what about those environments, you know, that were historic environments? Did they have to make changes? What kinds of health conditions? And, and you know, the ADA 
involved the medical community too, because, you know, individuals, depending on the condition that they had, had to be deemed disabled. What is the definition of disability? Um, who is perceiving that definition? Um, in the workplace, there were a whole host of issues and still remains to be a whole host of issues in terms of who is considered disabled, permanency of disability or temporary disability. So they had to work through all of that. And, and you know, those are things that you can just go back and forth on forever. But eventually you need to come, you know, to an agreement on what what all of that terminology meant, who was eligible, who was not eligible. So a lot of that had to deal with that, but also decision-making around the disability community in itself and, and making sure that the ADA had the voice of individuals who were impacted by that discrimination, that it shouldn't just be an external entity that makes a decision. It should be the individual with a disability also who was discriminated against that having that ability to take that first step and, and, you know, file those charges and see it through. Thank you, Beth. Raymond. Thank you, Beth. Yep. Raymond. Um, there are no other hands up. So I, so, so I, uh, you, uh, Janet, your, your story reminds me of, uh, when I used, I did consulting work for the World Bank, which is a large non-government organization around their disability program. And I started, I want to say, uh, let's, I'm making this up in, in February, uh, cause they wanted to develop a strategic plan to address disability within their organization. And it literally, I, I wrote the first draft in February and after like 40, revisions, literally 40 of them, all, each of which I had to read. Um, they, they came up with the plan the following January, you know, because there are all these different organizations in different countries and, you know, writing these things can be a real challenge. And it's the same thing with legislation. I think, you know, just Absolutely. trying to get everybody on the table reasonably comfortable. Um, and I had a sort of a high, uh, you know, high, high stress boss. And, you know, she was trying to make sure I wasn't going off the rails which sometimes I was, and it was, it was just a real challenge, but a really interesting experience for me to see how this whole thing works. Uh, anyway, that, that's, that's what your re- action reminded me of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. It, I had no idea how any of that worked prior to going in, you know, to actually promulgate, uh, legislation and rules and regulations. And you're, you're literally, in the middle, you know, of everyone and, you know, never mind to say the attorneys on, you know, were are in there also. And it's just like, it, it is extremely challenging, but when you get through it, I think the bottom line is, is that we are so incredibly fortunate in this country, you know, to have that kind of legislation behind us. And it's not perfect by any means, but we have it. And, and I think that the responsibility is on all of us to collectively, collectively make sure that we keep it and that if there are iterations and if there are changes, we need to be vigilant on making sure that they understand the potential impact because there are a lot of 
unintended consequences that can occur when you're writing language also and, and you're changing these rules and regulations. And, and it, it's really important for us to let people know that this would be the consequence. And, and it's important, you know, to, to understand the overall impact. Janet, I have a question. How do you feel about the high cost? I'm not saying in all cases, but in many cases, the high cost of adaptive technology. Yeah, it's, it's discouraging. Um, I'm actually a little, I'm actually a little, um, encouraged by some of the discussions around artificial intelligence or AI. AI. Oh boy. I am, and it's a slippery slope. I, I think that it can drive down cost of assistive technology, but it, it doesn't do it, you know, without problems. And I think that there are going to be, you know, multiple problems, but I also think that it has the potential to really add some significant changes in the lives of people with a range of disabilities um, using artificial intelligence, some of which we're already doing, you know, Alexa is artificial intelligence. And, you know, and so, you know, I think that you know, there's, again, this is another area that we need to be vigilant on also because it's one of those areas where artificial intelligence is so new to all of us. It's not actually that new in ex- being in existence, but it's new in the way that it's being used and the way that it is being expanded, you know, to all of us right into our homes. And so I think that there needs to be continued discussion as well as consideration, you know, on how do we help people with regard to affordability, you know, for assistive technology. It is absolutely, I, I was going to buy a piece of assistive technology myself the other day and I, I was really excited about it and I looked at it and I, and, and when I saw the price tag, I was like, there, there is no way. <laughs> there is just no way I can find a, a workaround, you know, to that. You know, the price points that get determined, part of the issue is, is that we're a small population that uses it. And until it goes mainstream, that's typically what then drives down those price points. The more people that use it, the less the cost. And so um, I'm hoping that artificial yes. intelligence will help with that. Yes, Ray, we have about two more minutes. Ray, are you informing us that we have another participant? Yes. Phone number ending in 970. 970. You're up next, and we have about two minutes yes. to go. Um, I wanted to ask you. Like you mentioned housing and why a lot of these don't, this is Beth from New Mexico, by the way, and why these agencies, some of them don't find people affordable housing or um, things like that because a lot of these housings want three times the rent for your income and people on Social Security don't make that. And uh, some of these agencies don't find it for them. And uh, they'd rather send them to rehab centers, people with all kinds of disabilities, when they don't really need that 24-7 care. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's a really good point. And that is a problem. Now, many of the agencies that serve people specifically with disabilities, like the vocational rehabilitation agencies, some of them may have what they call housing coordinators or resource 
a resource department where they can lead individuals who have a disability to a particular housing department that actually does provide housing. However, in this country, we are experiencing a significant decline in the availability of housing in general. And so there is a significant shortage that will take years, you know, to catch up with if there isn't the um, adequate focusing on that deficit of housing and apartments that are available. And so there is a, a, a really big need, you know, for someone to be looking at this issue for people with disabilities. The waiting lists are years long right. and it is ridiculous. So it, it is, it is, I think a, a situation that the disability community could keep raising to your legislators. Sure. If you keep raising it, it will be heard. Thank you very much, Beth. Janet, we are out of time for this edition of In Perspective. You brought a wealth of knowledge to all of us. We appreciate all that you do. You certainly know how to make a lot of people's lives a lot better than, uh, so we appreciate that very much. Thank you again. And let, let, let's get you back sometime soon. I want to continue our conversation for an update, especially. Absolutely. I'd love to talk to you about the data that's changing the statistics for people with disabilities and employment. So let's do that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Janet. Next week, stay tuned. We're going to have Dr. Arnold Baskies back on the program with the American Cancer Society. Peter, thank you. Ray, our participants. You're welcome, especially Janet. Thank you again. Go safe with God's abundant blessings. Take care, everybody. And since this is Bastille Day, we should say merci. Of course.